All right. <laughs> okay. I hear a lot of noise. Somebody uh, you still hear noise now? Uh, yeah, very loud child. Okay, now now it, uh, I don't hear the child. Okay. That was interesting. As soon as you touch the mouse, Chris, I no longer hear the, the noise. So must be on your side. Oh, okay. Uh, all right, well, let's go ahead and start talking about uh, the question was something that Tittenhan had said in the sense of embracing your suffering. And then you said to nurture your suffering. Okay. Actually, I would say that that's um, kind of a mistranslation or a translation error. Uh, on on his part, due to not understanding English exactly the way that we would use it, okay. And the reason for that is because it's not actually the the dukkha that we want to nourish; is that we want to nourish ourselves rather than spending our moments in dukkha. But it's the same point. Okay, the the issue is to nourish. All right, and that's a really important point because if we use the word nourish, then we can also understand what we mean by the term embrace. Because in fact, embracing is a form of nourishment. Just like when the mother new uh, is picking up her newborn child to nourish it, she's also embracing it at the same time, or bringing it really close, right? which actually means now that we're going to do some investigation of the dukkha, or uh, to look at the dissatisfaction, to recognize that we are dissatisfied, because most of the time, because we don't like dissatisfaction, or in fact, the whole point is whatever it is that we don't like, we're dissatisfied with it because we don't like it, whatever it is. And so if we don't like it, whatever it is, and uh, we tend to want to avoid that dukkha or the suffering, we want to avoid it. Because we want to avoid it, that means that we don't actually look at it very closely. An example of that is like a child who has a splinter in their finger that they'll hold her hand and, uh, and they'll do that. But when it's time for mommy or the doctor to inspect that finger, possibly to pull the, uh, <clears throat> uh, the infecting uh, sliver out or whatever it is, the splinter, they do that with a needle. We kind of inspect it with a needle. The child wants to withdraw their hand. They do not want to have that wound inspected they want to leave it alone okay to get away from it okay um avoiding it this is a very typical thing that's in in our minds that we don't want to deal with problems we'll leave it as a mental problem but we we will do it with with pushing it away kind of mentality 
And so what Titnahan is actually mentioning is, is to go ahead and embrace it. Go ahead and nurture it. Go ahead and take that needle and pull that splinter out. That's one's right effort. And, and to be honest with you, in some cases, it's downright painful to really took a, a look at uh, one's own bad behavior. That in fact, um, remorse and revenge are like that. That when we're remorseful of something, we wince every time we think about it, so we don't want to think about it. But it keeps coming back, and every time it comes back, we wince. Oh, you know, every time we think of that guy, we'll wince. And so we start to behave in a way like to avoid him. We don't want to be around the people that reminds us of our own uh, mental splinters. Uh, so if you have an argument about, uh, about anything with someone, uh, especially if it was a, a friend or an acquaintance that you knew, but now you want to avoid him. Okay, so this is what the Buddha is, is really talking about is, is that let's start to be open, not closed. Let's start to embrace, not push away. Okay, let's do an inspection. Let's do a nourishment so that we can nourish that part of us that is festering and sore so that we can really take a look at it and actually apply the effort that it takes to remove uh, the poison or the splinter or the uh, old memory that we're avoiding, but we still keep bringing it back to mind. Just like the child is not going to remember that the finger has a splinter every moment but he's going to remember it from time to time like once every five minutes he'll touch it or something like that and then he'll hold it and he'll try to avoid having any danger to it because he doesn't want it to be retouched now the problem is is that uh like a splinter in the finger if we don't remove the splint <clears throat> the splinter let us say that over time little pains will start to build up and not only that but it could get infected and things could get worse but even if it's just a splinter that's just stuck in the finger every time that that splinter hurts it's going to cause a certain amount of sensation or pain and we would rather stretch the pain out over a long period of time even if there's more pain rather than having an intense pain right now this is very, very characteristic. I want to avoid the pain. And you can see that in many, many cases. One is people don't want to have the vaccine for the for COVID simply because they're afraid of shots. But instead of being uh, honest with themselves about having afraid of having a shot, instead, they'll go around intellectualizing about, oh, well, it's not safe. And you've heard all the stories. And so we go around pain avoiding. And because we're avoiding pain, we continue to suffer. But if we are willing to take a look 
at that splinter in the mind and take a needle and dig it out, then the, the mind will heal. All right, so a splinter in the finger is actually in many cases, some people would say that's a little example, but really it's a big example because the splinters in the mind are um, much smaller than that. And so they're more subtle and so they're more difficult to see. And yet they're more, uh, let us say, while they are seemingly easier to avoid, they still don't go away. They still come back and touch us. They still come back and impact us. Those thoughts will come back. And every time that we do, uh, an example is having a fight with a friend. Every time you think of the friend, you'll remember that fight that you had. You'll go into a bad sort of feeling. And so you want to avoid thinking about that person. Or worse than that, we'll dwell and dwell and dwell and every thought is going to be about that person and the revenge you're going to take and the uh, proving that you were right in that argument and how dare him say those things about you and all of that kind of structure over and over and over and over and over again. But in a way, that's just kind of push him away or make things right. And so basically what that actually means is, is that now the splinter is in my finger. I'm going to be very cautious and careful with that finger. That the right thing to do would be um, uh, in the sense of openness, that if you've had an argument with someone, if you've had a disagreement, then it's mutually beneficial for both of you to go and clean that up. It's beneficial for you to bring this thing out into the open, to take a good look at it and to remove each other's mental splinters of each other so that you can become friends again. This is this is a way of talking about embracing the Duke rather than avoiding that guy. I want to actually get back together with him and make him my friend again. Which would be just one of many examples. Go ahead, uh, Robert. <clears throat> There's actually, you know, a famous little maxim, which is you should never go to bed with your partner if you're both angry. You know, if you're both if you're mad at each other, you have to clear that up first before you go to bed. Then you'll wake up angry. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. I'm really surprised that you heard that. How dare you steal a Southern Baptist Church of uh, edict. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's almost formally practiced in the uh, Baptist church, or at that's least funny. it was back in the 1950s and 60s. I, I don't really, I, to be honest with that's you, I really don't know what the Baptist church has been doing in the past 60 years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But way, way back when, other than politics, we do know that the Baptist church has become very political. But other than that, uh, way back when, it was actually very uh, family oriented in the way that we're talking about here. Yes. So uh, that's that would be an example. Of uh, playfulness. So if the husband and wife are fighting, then they should embrace each other as the dukkha. They should nourish each other as the dukkha, because in fact, 
the delusion is what is the dukkha? We think that the dukkha is that person or that splinter. Right. The real dukkha, though, is, is that we don't like that splinter. We don't like the way that we feel. And so right. we're avoiding the feelings. Which would be another way of saying repressing feelings as opposed to exposing them uh, in a way that we can see them. And when I say exposing them, that doesn't necessarily mean acting on them. Then, in fact, if the feelings are not exposed, the likelihood of them, uh, let us say, with the undertow or the undercurrent or the subconscious, we're much more likely to act. So if the husband and wife are willing to admit that, uh, or at least one of them is willing to admit that I'm really ticked off at him because of blah, 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 but I do also really love him, blah, 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 blah. So the, but I do really love him is now coming back and re-embracing or re-nurturing. And sometimes we'll go back and forth between those two to where if we just say, all right, I'm going to go with the nurturing side rather than the, uh, coming back to the one more thought of resent and remorse and then go back and forth between the two, what we can actually say is, okay, I'm going to make a choice now. I'm going to expose the fact that I do have a, have a problem and a, and a grief, but I don't necessarily expose that to him or until we figure out what's going on within our own mind. In other words, when we can come to the point that he really is my friend and I'm not going to have any more issues, that in, in fact, the only issue that I have now is to helping him get over his issue because I finished with mine. I've embraced my dukkha. I've, in, I've uh, uh, nurtured myself so that I've come back to homeostasis, that I have actually removed that splinter in the mind. Chris, does that help with what you're understanding? Yes, yes. Uh, the one question I had, though, uh, so um, he also said that, you know, what part of the embracing is what you were talking about, investigating it, you know, mm -hmm. investigating. But to go back to see what the cause was, the cause of the dukkha initially, and then, you know, once you know the cause, then you can eliminate the cause. How would that apply in, let's say, your argument situation? Would you, I mean, would you be going back in your own mind about how you ended up in that situation? Or I mean, that wouldn't really be a dialogue between two people, would it? I mean, um. The first thing that we can actually do on that side is to stop looking at the other persons, the one that we're having the argument with, stop looking at them as the problem and stop looking at their behavior is your issue. That the real issue is just that you don't like their behavior. An example is, is that if they've criticized you, recognize that you are sensitive to criticism, that that's the problem. 
The problem mm. is not that he criticized you. The problem is, is that you're sensitive to criticism. That in fact, that's one of the things that make uh, uh, some politicians really strong. And, and another way of saying it is, is that co politicians, in order to, let us say, uh, uh, the high quality, and I'll put in parenthesis, very good at making money by telling very good lies that many people will believe, unquote. So a good politician has to become uh, uh, thick-skinned, I think, is the way that we, that we refer to it, that we're capable of managing criticism. If someone is not ma ma uh, able to manage criticism very well, then they will try to avoid being criticized. And there's various ways that we can do that. One of the ways of avoiding being criticized is by uh, being top quality in our particular field, which is the way that the Jewish folks do it. They've got to go perform. <laughs> okay. Um, an, another way that we would do it is, is that some actually will hold back and not perform because even top quality performance has to deal with some criticism. But the only way to deal with no criticism at all is by being dead. Because we have this thing in our society of, uh, that it's impolite to speak ill of the dead. I mean, this was something that I was raised on. I don't think that it's true anymore. <laughs> I think, in fact, that even being dead is not going to get you from uh, free from criticism. It's just that you'd be free from having to listen to it. Right. All right. So there are many different ways that we deal with criticism, but very few of them are wholesome. The only wholesome way of dealing with criticism is by getting over it. And the best way to do that is by getting over it in advance. <laughs> that in fact, this is what they were thinking about the, the one of the advantages of encounter groups is that you could go through a seven day encounter group or whatever that you're you're doing and you're going to get a whole lot of criticism. But you can come out of that encounter group actually having dealt with that criticism and and you're fine but what happens instead is people not just they don't deal with criticism very well what they wind up is just being bullies going around criticizing others and that mm -hmm. i saw was one of the disadvantages of the uh, encounter groups was is it had the exact opposite effect rather than me being able to deal with criticism coming from the outside, I just got very good at criticizing the other people in the uh, encounter group. And so everybody's there to help everybody else and everybody winds up being not very benefited from it. So um, it's not an issue then of setting up phony or false encounter groups in order for you to get over uh, criticism. But going back to what I was saying about Kitty is, is that playing with her, using all of the critical kind of language, but doing it in a playful, joyful kind of way as she's a child so that she can get used to dealing with criticism when she's an adult. 
And because that's the actual best way of being uh, living one's life is to do so without concern about what other people have to say. And so um, this whole thing about I don't like you because you criticized me <laughs> is um, a logical policy. A better thing to say was, I really like you. Thank you for criticizing me. That gives me another opportunity to prove to myself that I'm above criticism. <laughs> and also, if you do criticize me, then I can take a look at and see is what you're criticizing. Is that actually correct? If it is, then that's a good Dhamma teacher. Thank you, friend, right. for teaching me some Dhamma. And if he was wrong when he criticized me, well, he's just an ordinary idiot anyway, so doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> right. So it either builds confidence because you handled it well or it teaches you something. Right. Mm -hmm. You either build confidence or it teaches you something. These are the two op uh, actions for criticism. And yet we almost never take that approach. Right. It could also do both. It could build your confidence and also teach you something because you could be confident in the sense of I handled this well, but you also mm -hmm. know you made a mistake. So you go and fix the mistake. You don't make it again, but you also have the confidence of knowing that you handled it well. OK, well, there's also the issue is, <laughs> is that you're criticizing you for something that used to be an issue for you, but it's not anymore. Right, or might not that's one where we can have both of those. Thank you very much for mentioning that because I've seen that in the past, and and it, there'd still be some remnants of it, but I can still handle your criticism. So there's uh, there's many different possible options for that, but the important part is is that it still requires us to be open and honest and willing to do an investigation, rather than trying to hide from it. So again, going back to the original point was embracing the dukkha. Yes. Rather than perpetuating it ignorantly. <laughs> really take a look at it. And I mean, like embracing that splinter means we're going to take it out. <laughs> right. And, you know, one thing that's really interesting to think about is how this is wrapped up in personality view, right? So the only reason the splinter hurts, the mental splinter, that is, is because you still have personality view, which is I'm, I can't change. This is part of who I am. That's a big problem. And the thick skinned approach is to maybe also you might identify with that, but you also identify with having thick skin. So that is also <laughs> you're right. That's exactly a good point. Right. Um, <coughs> Whereas the lack of personality view, it's not that you have thin skin or thick skin. You have no skin. <laughs> or, or the other thing is, is that you're not a target and whatever, you know, that would have penetrated thick or thin skin, it just didn't touch me. Can't touch me. Right. <laughs> yeah, we're going to play dodgeball with Duca, but you got to play dodgeball with Duca by being able to see the Duca when it's coming. So in, in a way, that's embracing the uh the dukkha imagine that um the baseball uh pitcher is throwing a ball at us or across the plate he's throwing a a, a proper strike 
And if we stand in the way of that ball going from 50 to 100 miles an hour, when it hits us, it's going to hurt if you get hit with that. But you can embrace that ball if you've got the proper equipment, for instance, a catcher's mitt. Or maybe a first baseman's bent. Because the first baseman's bent is is really great for being able to catch things from all different directions and angles. Um, And so that would then be able to embrace the dukkha. Would be like um, the same thing then of being quick enough to catch an arrow that's being shot at you right out of the air. Right. Uh, you see that in movies from time to time, and it's always done by actors and setting things up. But in uh, real reality, um, martial artists can properly train so that they can catch an arrow in mid-flight. Mm. Because they can see it coming. That was the next thing I think he brought up is that the whole purpose of that is to transform it, you know, you, uh, you know, to transform the dukkha into mm-hmm. something else. But dukkha. Yeah. into dukkha, right? Right. Yeah. But you you did bring up something that I have another question on. You, you said that um, you brought up the fact that sometimes we have things that pop into our head repeatedly because and we keep avoiding them, um, and. That confused me a little bit because there, um, for example, when, when we're doing uh, Anapanasati, where we notice something and it's unwholesome, we're, we're kind of throwing it out and bringing in a better thought. So we are kind of ignoring it in a way, correct? I mean, uh, so when would you say, Actually, hey. no, the ignoring it would be just letting those thoughts roll. Okay. That would be the ignoring it. No, we're not act- <clears throat> We're not ignoring it. We're actively grabbing it and throwing it out. Okay. Well, how would you inve- how would you investigate it though? Let's go to that because you said you know you want to investigate these things. So if something keeps popping up, maybe it's a regret or uh, whatever it is, and that that keeps popping up in your mind. Something that happened when you were ten, it just keeps coming up. How would you approach that? How would you investigate that? And then how would how would that be resolved? And I guess the way uh, okay. before before we answer the question or before we actually think of answering the question. Let's go back to the time when we weren't even knowledgeable so much of the issue. And yet all of those years, something that happened that was 10 years old, every time that thought comes up, we wince. And then the thought will come up again and we wince. And and that thought comes up and we wince again and we wince again. And then we, we kind of avoid it. We don't want to think about it, but it keeps coming back. All right. So that's the normal ways that we we live our lives with that uh, avoiding it as well as keep coming back over and over and over again. And we keep avoiding it every time that it comes up. So a new way of doing it is just to be mindful or to have the sati to wake up and, and recognize. Uh, and one of the ways that I talk about it is to have a don't do this list. 
Okay, we have a a to-do list. Many people have various to-do lists. I think a good Dhamma dude, in the spirit of the Buddha, each one of us should have a don't do that list. And that this then would be one of the items that we would put on the list, possibly with great ceremony, great grand fair, uh, have a dedicated uh, cup of coffee, and uh, uh, maybe uh, draw some colored flowers around the symbol. But this item on the list is, is put there with very, very strong understanding. I am not going to think about that event that happened when I was 10 years old. I'm going to be on guard now for that. That's the embracing it. I'm going to know when that thought comes up. Okay, and then we're going to nurture it when it does come up. When it comes up, we can say, aha, I caught you. There you are. My great big item on my great big don't do it list. Here it is. I caught you that time. Aha, I can see it. Okay, this is gladdening the mind in the sense of being happy that you can see it, you can be happy that it's there as opposed to being miserable because you're trying to push it away kind of absent-mindedly or without any sati or the normal pattern. So now that you've got this item on the big to don't do it list and it comes up, we can say, aha, I caught you. And so we start drawing all of those flowers around the actual event. I'm really pleased that I can see myself doing that nurturing it okay and so that takes the complete energy of the wincing out of it because now you're going to be very happy that you had that memory but now you're dwelling on the fact that you're you're uh, not that person who was 10 years old what happened at the age of 10 happened to someone else that obviously i haven't done that since i was 10 years old so that is not me But see, in a way, with whatever happened at 10 years old, you still have the kind of thing that just because you remember it, it actually was real and it happened to you. And every time you think of it, it still happens to you. But now that we've got this thing on a don't do that list and we think of it and it comes up. Now we can say, aha, I caught you. Yes, I am not that 10 year old. That is not who I am. I completely forgive that 10-year-old for screwing up. But I've learned that lesson. Let's get over it now. And I can have a ball in this present moment. So you have just now changed it from avoidance and wincing into uh, bringing it in, uh, 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 embracing it, and nourishing it. And that's the way to get over it. That's exactly what Titnahan was saying. This is very, very typical of the teaching of the Buddha. Yes, Robert. So I think um, also, let's say we return to the case of the argument or criticism or something like that. Let's say the argument. And let's say it's with a partner, close friend, family member, et cetera. Um, I think you can also, and let's say they're not really trained in the Dhamma or they only know a little bit about it, et cetera. You can also, um, not only can you look ahead for your own dukkha, but you can also help them look ahead for their dukkha, right? So you could prepare them and say, 
hey, I might be about to say something or share some news with you that I received today that might be difficult. You know, I hope you handle this in a good way or something along those lines, right? And I think it's interesting to also see how you can help other people have the sati or the ability to, to catch the ball, so to speak. Even yeah. if they're trained. Yeah. That's 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 good. That's actually quite typical in our in our society, but it takes a bit of mindfulness. Rather than just dumping the bad news, we right. always prepare somebody. Uh, in other words, you uh, an, an extreme example would be the cop doesn't just knock on the door and when the lady answers, you say, "Are you Mrs. Jones?" and she says, "Yes," and then he says, "We just killed your husband." <laughs> We're not going to lay it out like that. Right, right. Okay. Um, we're going to soften the blow. We can say he has been injured or that he was taken to the hospital. Right. Right. And so now we have questions and whatnot like that. And so we can ease the way into very, very bad news. Right. That, I mean, that's very common in our society. For Dama dudes, it doesn't matter so much. Hey, your husband's dead. Get over it. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a bit higher quality. So let's let's stay with ordinary people uh, in in ordinary uh, ways and by like you're saying, soften the blow. Right. Okay. So softening the blow actually takes a skill. And so that's a good skill to develop because we deal with ordinary people on a regular basis. Right. And, and you can generally, stop. though, it's the Dhamma dudes who are helping each other that if you really want to, um, let us say, if you are willing to become uh, confronted with your conceit, most people, if you ease up to that, they can easily avoid it. But if you can just openly, directly say, you're being conceited right now, <laughs> especially if it's a third party that can look over your shoulder and see that you're writing a really trash email to some friend or something, and they read that email and they can say, hey, man, <laughs> look at what you're doing. You don't say it like that. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Okay, so oh, so it depends upon the situation as to whether you want to ease into it or not, because often the easing into it is something that you will do for an ordinary person. But if you're really trying to help someone get over one of the five or the ten fetters, rather, then direct confrontation. Look at what you're doing. See right. this. Because you would expect them to have the same friendship and honesty and openness with you. That this is what makes Sangha. Right. Is, is, is joyfully, cheerfully, point and nurturingly embracing the dukkha and nourishing it. Right. By recognizing openly that we have screwed up. And that we practice that on a moment-by-moment -moment basis by recognizing that any th unwholesome thought is a kind of little screw-up. Let's not screw this up. Let's have fun instead. <laughs> Let's have a ball. 
let's have some saga here. Let's not go around criticizing one another or feeling bad. What's funny about that is I think sometimes having the wholesome approach can be viewed as not approaching something directly, right? So if you have the viewpoint that, which the wholesome viewpoint of everything's okay, everything's fine, you know, pretty much all the time, um, you know, some people might interpret that as, oh, you're not actually confronting reality, you know? And so it's interesting how that, even though it's true, everything is okay, everything is fine. Um, sometimes that's, you know, criticized. It depends upon at that level, the definition of reality. Hmm. Okay. An example of that is that mouse is real. This tree is real. The laptop is real. This bench is real. But uh, the kind of word reality that you were talking about there was not that kind of reality. It was an opinion. When right. people say, oh, you're not dealing with reality means you're not listening to my opinion. <laughs> and so and so understanding the difference, then I would say is, is that uh, when we're using the word reality, we generally refer to it as physical reality rather than conceptualized reality. Hmm. Because conceptualized reality is just a conception. It's not real. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. An example of that is Donald Trump tells lies on a regular basis. That's real. Donald Trump is a bad person. That's a conception. That's a judgment call. Hmm. One's a fact. The other one is not real. One's a fact in the sense that Donald Trump is a liar, and I can just really get a kick out. <laughs> Look at what he's doing. That's ridiculous. How can anybody believe that? Right. But if I see he's a liar and, oh, he's such a terrible, bad person, now look at the difference in the way that I feel. One's a judgment call, and I made myself bad because I've judged him as bad. And the other one is I'm just seeing the reality of the situation. I think it's hilarious. Right. <laughs> okay, so often when we're dealing with reality, people are not dealing with a real reality. They're dealing with a conceptualized reality, a judgment call. This is what is Adam and Eve's story and, and uh, the Torah is all about. This sure. is the story. They're thrown out of paradise. The reality is, is that that tree and the plants and all of this around is a paradise. But when I begin to see evil and good in that paradise, that's when I'm destroying the paradise. I'm not I'm not um, embracing or nurturing the reality that that is. So that's another way of talking about embracing the dukkha because the dukkha is real. And when I see that it's real, there is a splinter in my mental finger. Now I can deal with it. I can pull it out. Let's pull it out quickly. Right now. Right. So here's a question. Do you think sati is kind of like a muscle where it it weakens if there's too much that you have to manage? Or do you think it is just something you that is endless and you just continually do it every moment and it's fine? You just have to remember to do it. You know, do you see it as a muscle or not a muscle, essentially, is my question. 
Um, you can think of it as a mental muscle. A better way of thinking of it is that it's merely a skill. But much of the skill of a pianist is motor skills. That the best way to really learn how to play music well is by playing scales and chords and arpeggios and all kinds of stuff like that to get the dexterity in the fingers so that you can actually then, as the, so yes, there are some motor skills in there, but unfortunately, <laughs> they're up in, up in here. There's, there's very little um, physical dexterity. Hello, Parker. Good to hey, see Parker. you. So, um, the the question then, uh, Parker, we're talking about embracing dukkha and nurturing dukkha. And if a situation has dukkha in it, we should, in fact, be able to see that and deal with it correctly, which would be the embracing it. So if it's mental uh, dukkha that we have, we should acknowledge that or to see it or to pay attention to it with the right effort of paying attention to saying in the sense of, well, I do not have to think about that right now. So uh, Chris had mentioned something that it was an episode that happened. He mentioned 10 years old. So we all have things that happened when we were kids that we when those things come to mind, we wince over them. Sometimes there's a whole bunch of things that we remember and every one of them we will wince over. And sometimes we'll have a few of them that just keep happening over and over and over and over again, every week or every two weeks or every month or whatever like that. In fact, one of them that I had with myself was, it was Sunday night. I did not understand what was going on, but I didn't even know that it actually existed until I was in psychotherapy. Mm. And then is when it came to understand that uh, I would be in a really bad mood on Sunday night. That's kind of hard to figure out. But as a young adult, I wound up being really angry, miserable, frustrated, and uptight on Sunday nights. And I chased it back to my early um, teens when there was the very, very best television on Sunday night. There was the Smothers Brothers and Laugh-In and a couple of those old shows. Uh, Ed Sullivan, I think, started the Sunday night stuff. So um, those were the shows that were on Sunday night. Very best television. Meanwhile, my mother was absolutely adamant. You go to church on Sunday night. <laughs> but on top of that I hadn't done my homework and I really needed to do my homework and so I'm frustrated because I haven't got my homework done I want to watch television and I've got to go to church yeah. and, that, and that whole thing stayed with me until um, <clears throat> I figured out what was going on and then I began to um, first off deal with Sunday nights in a better way. But um, eventually, in fact, it was quite a while later that I began to deal with Sunday nights before Sunday night. 
And how was I doing that? Again, by nurturing the dukkha and inviting the dukkha of Sunday night by telling myself on Saturday, tomorrow night's going to be a really good night for you. Everything is going to be fine. You've got nothing to do, no place to go. All the business is cleaned off your plate. You don't have to do anything until Monday. And I was able to cure myself of that right of that Sunday night thing. So that's a clear example of it, Chris, right there. Is, is that I gave myself suffering every Sunday night. Every Sunday night, I would be miserable on Sunday night until I chased it down. But even though chasing it down, that didn't do the cure. The do the cure was is to recognize it in advance and then deal with it so that we can talk ourselves literally into enjoying our Sunday nights. Now, Sunday night's the best time. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I have a question about that. So you did a little bit of psychological archaeology through your therapy in order to identify the cause. of the Psychology of is really excellent at doing archaeological psychology. That's what the psychologists are. I mean, they're, they're excellent at that. They should get geology degrees. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. But it seems like, you know, the teaching of Anapanasati, right, is such that one should just say Sunday night's fine. There's no need to do the psychological archaeology, but mm -hmm. for you it was valuable. So, do you think it? You know, had you just been practicing on Upanasati at that time, it, you would have been able to bypass that whole process, and it would have just yeah. You know, I could have just well when it was when I finally got into Anapanasati was how I was actually able to do it. I was actually able to deal with it, and it didn't even matter that I had done the psychological archaeology on it, because the psychological archaeology didn't cure it. Right. In some ways, it made it worse. Hmm. Interesting. How did it make it worse? Because now I'm dreading Sunday night coming. <laughs> I know it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, what, one I, question I, on that. I'm, I'm sorry, Robert. Go ahead. You, no, go ahead, Chris. <laughs> no, so, so when they're talking about investigating and finding the cause, that seems like an archaeological dig. You know, you're going back, you're trying to figure out what created this dukkha to begin with. How can, what's the cause of this dukkha? You know, how can I you know, eliminate the cause. That seems you're, you're, you're basically going back, right? I mean, it's the same kind mm -hmm. of thing. So, right. So what do you, what are you saying is different between the okay. psychology and what, and what we're doing here, I guess. Okay. Just because you know, the, the, uh, the events, let us go back to the 10 year old kind of thing. Whatever happened at the age of 10 right now, you can't do anything about what happened in the past. If you could, then you are the past. And that's a major mistake that every human being makes as part of our society that we're built into our society is, is that what you did last year is who you are now. You're in prison for 50 years for what you did 50 years ago, not who you are now. You're not in prison for who you are now. You're in prison for what you did 50 years ago. Okay, so that happens not just with real prisons, that happens also with the prison of one's own mind, that I'm imprisoned by something that happened many years ago, 
where in fact that's not who I am now. Ah, well, if that's not who I am now, then why am I right now being that person who was 10 years old so that I can have the feelings that I had and have had all along? Every time I think about that event that happened when I was 10 years old, I feel bad. In the present moment, I am that 10-year-old. Yeah, well, I mean, it's almost like watching a movie. Like, if I watch a movie and somebody does something stupid, I can feel embarrassed for them. And when I, if I remember something when I was 10 and I did something embarrassing, I could still feel embarrassment for myself. Um, but, and so obviously that's Ah, but when you're watching the movie, when you're watching that movie, it's a visual image that's coming into the input for the eyes and you're living in the present moment. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, yeah. But when you still remember get... something that happened when you were 10 years old, you're recreating something that's not in the present moment. True. But it is like a movie, kind of. I mean, it's a similar kind of thing. It is like a movie. And this is what we're saying, that when you start playing these movies, you should see that you're playing these movies. Mm-hmm. Okay. And embrace not the movie itself, but embrace the fact that you are uh watching an old movie an old tape so that you can then remind yourself in this present moment that's not me that's not who i am okay so the example of sunday nights the conditions that caused my anxiety week after week after week for years when i was in uh high school those things don't exist that who had that trauma week after week doesn't exist anymore. He's dead. So that's the way that we want to embrace the present moment is by saying it's dead now. That's in the past. That's not who I am. And if you want to do a little bit more, you can go so far as to say, and I forgive myself, that 10-year-old, I forgive that 10-year-old for what he did, and he it wasn't all of that bad because he survived. If it was really a big trauma that the 10-year-old had done, he would be dead at 10 years old. But he it wasn't all of that bad because not only did he survive, but look who you are now. And so you can forgive that 10-year-old for what he has done because that's not you. That was a 10-year-old. And you're not 10. You're in the present moment. So now that you can forgive that one, you can say, and it doesn't matter because that's not who I am. And I can feel the way that I want to right now. So this is a way then of nurturing that dukkha. You nurture that 10-year-old. You forgive him for what he had done back then. But that's not who you are. That you're a different person completely now. And so you can then get over that regret or over that remorse or over that winch. That in fact, if you do have a winch, then go for the winch. Oh, look at that winch. That's a really interesting winch because sometimes people will have the winch without even knowing the thought that caused that winch. But that happens quite commonly, that people just go around just, you know, freaked out without even knowing that it was an event that they remembered when they were 10 years old, (laughs) that it is causing them to winch. So you're at least along the path of waking up to the fact that we know that it was an event that happened when you were 10. 
So now that we know that, every time that we put that on the not to do list, don't think about being 10 years old because when you do, you whinge. And so when you do whinge, you can say, aha, but that's not who I am now. I don't, I can stop that whinge. I can catch it. Maybe just a tiny bit of a whinge. And then when we get really good at it with real forgiveness, and when that thought of 10 comes, we can say, oh, I'm glad that's not me. I don't do that kind of stuff. That's not who I am. And now that's the cure. The cure is, is that that's not me. This is where the whole idea of personality comes. The personality view is, is that I am my past. That I am the one who is 10 years old. When I think about that 10 years old, rather than no, it's just somebody else. It's not my problem. It's distance. Put some distance in there. Robert, you had a question. I did, yeah. So it's interesting. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts and looking at this from the Patita Samapada view. Uh, because, you know, if you were to take, say, the movie, you know, watching a movie versus watching your own memory and watching your own memory is kind of like reading a book. And I personally find novels more emotionally moving than film because you use your imagination and you're more engaged because you're using your imagination. Whereas with a movie, you don't use your imagination at all. It's more a passive experience. And I think with memory, it's a step above the novel because not only are you using your imagination to recreate it, but you're also identifying with the person that's going through it. So um, so what's kind of the view of that with uh, Paticca Samapada, and what are your thoughts on kind of books versus movies versus memories, all those different okay. forms of, yeah. Okay, well, one of the things about the novels that makes a novel successful is, is that many of the people who buy the book do so because they identify with one of the characters in the novel. Right. And the, the novels that sell the very best are the ones where the people identify with the star of the novel. And so there's a lot of identity going on with reading novels. And that's also the issue of um, writing the book or, excuse me, watching the movie. An example, then, let's use the example of a movie like Avatar. OK, so. There's one guy who gets in a machine and he goes in, uh, out to this other kind of real world uh, without uh, spacesuit equipment on because he wouldn't be able to survive out there or something like that. And so uh, the, the point is, is that when people are watching the movie, who are they going to identify with? Are they going to identify with uh, uh, the villain? who is going to try to destroy the place? Are, are we going to identify with the guy who visits back and forth? Are we going to identify with the star of the, uh, um, uh, the blue people? Are we going to, uh, in fact, the star of the blue people is a female. And so all the women in the audience are going to identify with the blue girl rather than identify with the matron who is, uh, supposedly the white race. So that's a very interesting way of painting the blue. If they'd have painted the black, no one would have ever done that identification. 
But if they painted them blue, that means that now that they can identify with this sweet young lady who is really, really attached to, or not attached, let us say knowledgeable of the environment that she's living in. So the point that I'm making here is, is that it has to do with how we identify with the movie or how we identify with the novel. With the thoughts, obviously we're going to identify with those. That's the worst scenario because we're going to guarantee to identify with that one. <laughs> <laughs> right. And in fact, here's a way of, of uh, doing it, that the next time that you rehearse or remember an argument with someone in your mind, take and become the other person. So mm. if you've had an argument with Joe, when you're remembering that argument with Joe, remember it from Joe's point of view, not my point of view. <laughs> we turn That's that around. And my dad's name is Joe. <laughs> Quite a funny, well, I could have uh, used another be. word like Jim or Matt or Tom or Noah or something, you know, but it doesn't really matter who it is. The point is, is that when we yeah. remember an incident, we always remember it from a personality point of view. Yes. Rather than as a third person observer's point of view. It's always he did that. Is not the issue is he did that to me. That's the issue. Yep. Or it's not that that happened to a 10 year old is that that happened to me when I was 10 years old. That's a that's like a big uh, NLP phobia cure thing, right? To disassociate from from the first person. You basically mm -hmm. take take a bigger a third person perspective, right? Or a, you, you get out of your skin, basically, and look at it from a. Mm -hmm. Yes, thick or thin, get out of your skin. <laughs> 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 and put the skin in the game instead well it's funny because i've done that before where i've looked at something like imagined i was the other person and it actually is quite helpful you know because if you imagine yourself as them and you realize oh i actually did do something wrong because you were only looking at it from your own perspective and from your perspective, you feel you didn't do anything wrong. And maybe you didn't, but then if you look at it from their perspective, it's like, oh, okay, I understand now. Then you learn, and then that feels good to learn. Precisely so. Excellent. This is what the point is. Is that And how do we then? So in that regard, that would be embracing the dukkha rather than saying, oh, the dukkha that I feel is because of what he said. And therefore, when I remember that, I'm going to remember it from my own perspective, and that's the way we do it. To embrace the dukkha would be to take the other guy's point of view and look at the behavior of the 10-year-old or the one who suffers on Sunday night or whatever it was, <laughs> the, the YT, the yours truly, um, to, to see it from the other perspective. Right. Uh, and this is also quite known in other, uh, let us say, cliches. An example of that is walk a mile in his shoes. Or put yourself in the position mentally of the other person rather than always putting ourselves in the mental position of the me 
that was the original observer of the situation. Sure. So yeah, this oh. is a way of, of embracing then the Duke is to embrace the whole show, turn the tables around, take a good look. Because in fact, whenever we are in an argument, there's no possibility of being in an argument without being at least half the problem. That <laughs> if you're not a problem, you're not having an argument with anybody. You just kind of agree with everything that they say. Sure. So a question about embracing the dukkha. So one thing I found, you know, um, you know, in my relationship is that when my girlfriend and I have a disagreement or, or something along those lines, and then we work through it and we get over it together. It makes the relationship better almost basically every single time, you know. And so I think that's really interesting how if you embrace the dukkha and your friendship or relationship or whatever and you get over it together, it actually becomes better. And I'm curious to hear your, your thoughts on this. That's exactly um, right. That That's well stated. I don't need to say anything more. But that's the whole point. You just restated what we're talking about here is is that, yeah, your relationships with other people would be much, much better if you get over that she hurt me. Right. And and I think it's interesting, too, because when you overcome something together, you um you really do develop a stronger bond because you've overcome adversity together. Even if it's mm-hmm. not an argument or a disagreement, let's say it's just something bad happens, you know, um, and you guys overcome it together. But in both of those cases, you're overcoming dukkha together. And so you develop more trust, um, which is great. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, Right. That's, um, there's, there's a whole lot of places that we can go with that. Um, with in in the sense of um relationships and how we deal with one another but that's in fact what divorce is all about is two people becoming selfish and Mm. by doing so they separate into an individual self rather than being in the partnership and so we need to re-establish that partnership every time that it starts to break up Anytime that you have any slightest disagreement with uh, a partner, uh, be careful because it can take off in the wrong direction in the sense of separation. Right. So when you have thoughts of separation, like uh, the girl says, I need space. What does that mean? (laughs) Okay. What does that mean? I need space. That's a very sure. interesting question. Why does she need space? That means that I no longer want to be in a partnership because that's uncomfortable. I want to break things out and get into seclusion. That in fact, uh, uh, people who, uh, let us say a husband and wife could actually go camping with the intention of it being a meditation retreat. They can be in great harmony and communication with each other, not necessarily verbal. But they can be in uh, in a sangha out in the woods together because they have really literally gotten away from it all, including the way that they related to each other when they were at home. 
Do you think it's healthy, though? This is very typical about a vacation. I mean, this is one of the things. Many, many doctors will recommend that if a couple is fighting, to get away, to go on a vacation, to go to the woods, to go to a retreat, go to a resort, go do something to change the situation so that you can change the way you're behaving around each other. Now, it's quite possible that the husband and wife are, are having a spat or an argument or trying to get over a big issue like uh, being cheated on. And so they take a vacation and then they just fight the whole vacation. <laughs> That's also possible. But it, it but it is uh, often a change of uh, venue or a change of um, uh, location can help change one's mental perspective. So, uh, uh, go ahead, Robert. Thank you. So, I, I'm curious. So, like, you know, like in my relationship, you know, so we, um, you know, very passionate, you know, went from long distance to living together. And it's, and, you know, living with someone is a lot that you're learning about the other person, about yourself, how you handle things, etc. And so, I thought it would just be nice for me to just come out to the island for a few days on my own, just to take a little breather. But I do love spending time with her. I do miss her, but I thought it was kind of healthy just to have a little bit of seclusion. But do you think that is a bad thing that I would feel that way? Or, you know, like, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, you needed to have a big seclusion because you didn't know how to get a little one. <laughs> Excuse me, I'm going to go into seclusion for a moment. <laughs> that was nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Seclusion can be very small, temporary. It doesn't have to be a big, big thing. That, um, uh, that in fact, uh, it might not be necessary. You can look at it from the perspective that, uh, had you been able to do the little separations and get some quiet space in your mind often and any time that you wanted, then you didn't need to separate from her. Mm. Then, in fact, uh, during COVID, I imagine uh, the, for instance, the situation here is, is that Tam just went back to work on the 1st of December. Not only is Copenhagen opening back up, it's doing so with a vengeance. <laughs> That's wonderful. And all of a sudden, it is now a destination because of Thai government has changed. Okay, so back to the point. For the past two years, Tam has been at home. She hasn't been working. That has been very, very delightful for the family that she was at home. Right. But, but many, many times people have been living their lives, both of them working, and then all of a sudden both of them have lost their job and they're now at home full time having to deal with each other. I imagine there's been quite a lot of sparks in many, many households because people are having to deal with each other on a more, uh, let us say, frequent basis. Right. Okay. And so they, they want to get away from it without recognizing all they have to do is just close their eyes and, sh and shut their mouth. <laughs> and, and you've got pretty good seclusion right then and there. Yeah. I mean, I felt bad leaving. But that's like, after it's a skill yeah. to be developed. That's after it's a, a developed skill. Right. 
right? And I feel my skill is pretty well developed. It's been going so well, you know, and um, and I did feel like I missed her as I was well, leaving, you know. And how many still, months have you been nice. doing this? How many months have you been doing this? Um, well, we started talking in February. So okay, um, I guess came out what? Here you ain't yeah. seen nothing yet. Yeah, <laughs> as far as skill development goes. You still have many, many years of applying to Dama. After you've been applying it for year after year so that you're really, really skilled, you can look back at this particular year and say, oh, when I said I was really skilled, what an amateur I was saying that. <laughs> because that's not you. You'll, 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 you'll appreciate skill as it grows, recognizing that the skill level that you used to have is not who you are anymore. I do already, just going back to July, August, September, even last month. It's progressing at a big rate, for sure. Um, Why? Well, it's going to continue progressing at that rate for the next 10 or 20 years. What's, what is it going to be like 10, 20 years from now? <laughs> oh, God, I don't even know. <laughs> yeah, you don't know. I mean, everything is so great already. I can't imagine how wonderful it's going to be 10 years from now. <laughs> yeah. Probably about the same. I mean, I've got about as much of this joy as I can stand now. <laughs> <laughs> So that's the way of looking at it is, is that, yes, in the beginning, when we have no skill, we do need to break the seclusion, uh, get into seclusion because the um, relationships are tense and uncomfortable because the two people who were in a relationship got into that relationship because they needed a relationship because they weren't secure on their own in the first place. Hmm. And so it is going to be a kind of a back and forth and a back and forth. The question is, can you speed that up so that every disagreement that you have with your wife or your girlfriend is over about a second later or two seconds or maybe five seconds or maybe 10 seconds, but a day, a two, a week, <laughs> that's, you know, very slow Dama. <laughs> sure. Sure. But it is marvelous compared to what Dama did last for a month and two months. <laughs> right. <laughs> <clears throat> and so, yeah, things will begin to speed up. And as they speed up, you can come back to it over and over and over again. But in fact, one of the ways of talking about it, and this is um, um, an interesting concept, is to begin to think. First, let's start with the breath. They say, on average, people will breathe about 14,000 breaths a day. Wow. Dhamma does probably down to about five, maybe four, three, maybe a thousand breaths a day. How many of those breaths are you actually going to be aware of taking? Not okay. enough. Not very many. A very, very few. I would say maybe 100 a day or 200 a day or 300 a day would be about a uh, championship level. <laughs> that we're absolutely absent-minded all the time. The question is not how can you do it all the time, but the question is how soon can you remember? How quick are you to come back? That's the question. Can you come back quickly? Can you come back quickly? Can you come back quickly? Well, the answer to that has to do with how excellent are you at embracing the dukkha? 
that you're willing to look at it rather than dwell suffering from it, trying to escape from it day after day after day, week after week, month after month. Now we're willing to embrace it. We can take a look at, aha, I got you. I see you now. You're my friend. I got you. <laughs> or the other one is, is that, aha, I see you, but that's not who I am anymore. Out you go. But it, it, it really has to do with that quickness of coming back and paying attention to what the mind is doing. If we can see that dukkha, especially if we've already actually done a to-do list. I, haven't, I don't know of anybody who's actually taken a piece of paper to write down a don't do it list, but I would recommend that. <laughs> Start a list of all, because it's going to be interesting by the time that you got to the second page of things that you put on your don't do it list, you've already scratched off about two thirds of the, of the first page. Been there, done that. Scratch. Don't do that no more. Been there, done that. Scratch. Don't do that anymore. <laughs> I have a funny idea. We could uh, release a, a, a don't do this, don't do list kind of poster, and you write on what goes on the don't do list, and we could donate all the profits to a lion sanctuary. Oh, I understand what you're talking about. Like cuss words in a cookie jar that every time the daddy uses a cuss word, he's got to put a dollar in the cookie jar. Is that the kind of thing you're talking about? We can do a exactly. fundraiser with that. Let's organize. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we'll give it all to the Alliance Sanctuary. It'd be great. <laughs> oh, yeah, we could. We could, in fact, uh, support Alliance Sanctuary. Maybe a Dhamma dude who's uh, aspiring to become a Dhamma teacher, but he wants to work for his living. Let's support him. Let him live in the Watt. We pay a few expenses for him. And uh, yeah, we could do donations like this. And people could donate based upon their waking up. As soon as they wake up to something stupid, they say, I'm going to give them a dollar. Thank you very much. for. <laughs> awesome. So that's a good idea. I like that. That would be that would be wholesome. We could, uh, yeah, we could actually call it the Dhamma cookie jar. There you go. <laughs> you have it. You can have an app. Mm -hmm. Parker, <laughs> yeah. do you have anything to say about this? You're muted. Doesn't look like it. Is on the wrong microphone. Can you hear me now? Yes. All right, great. Uh, earlier, the word um, suppression came to mind. I think that's a word that's often misunderstood in mm -hmm. the sense of um, I hear students when they come to you, and I might have had this thought as well, um, mistake gladdening the, gladdening the mind for suppressing unwholesome thoughts. Um, but I think what the word actually means is suppressing the action that comes from the thought um, or suppressing actually accepting that that thought was dukkha and taking a hold of it then and changing it into a wholesome thought. Mm -hmm. Yes, generally what suppression actually means in process is um, thought, feeling, action. 
and suppression is thought feeling thought feeling thought feeling but i suppress the action and let all the feelings build up all right mm -hmm. we're actually going a step uh earlier than that so that we have a quickness so that when the thought occurs we can interrupt that thought so that it doesn't bring about the bad feeling Mm -hmm. Because it's our feelings that we suppress because we've got all of these enormous bad feelings that we have talked ourselves into. And to now we're not acting upon those feelings because of fear, remorse or whatever. Mm -hmm. But if we're able to change the mind and and gladden the mind, then we don't have unwholesome thoughts to suppress anymore then in yes. fact, there's no reason to suppress your feelings at all, especially if your feelings are feelings of joy and gladness and happiness. Why suppress those? No, we only suppress the bad feelings, like most specifically anger. That's the one that we mostly suppress. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> because um, uh, sadness and grief, I don't think that we suppress those. I think that we just wallow in that one. <laughs> sure. Um, suppression, does that um, put an end to the feeling or is it a thought of, oh, I don't want to. So you said thought, feeling, thought. Is that third thought um, the same cause or is it like, I don't like this feeling? Well, it uh, you can talk about it in the two-step approach in the sense of when we see the thought, feeling uh, sequence, when we recognize that what I think determines how I feel. We're not normally watched for that, that we no. don't really investigate the think, feel, think, feel, think, feel sequence that we have. So when we start paying attention to that and recognize, oh, if I'm thinking about that argument, then I'm going to feel like I'm still in that argument because it's me. But when we can wake up to that argument and say, hey, that's my friend. I don't have to continue to argue. Let's have thoughts about how and how much I enjoy his company rather than thinking about that argument that we had. Yes, um, certainly. So, the I understand that. The question was more um, when people talk of suppression, I think the idea of suppression kind of builds on itself. And I was curious what the how that happens like you see like priests who are suppressing like lustful thoughts and those build on themselves build on themselves they do they not more, right? suppress the lustful thoughts they suppress the thought feelings the actions. feelings yes that's more accurate okay. saying it. they are thinking about that young altar boy they're looking at that altar boy they're commusing about that altar boy they're imagining about that altar boy without his altar boy clothing on and he's not then acting upon it by touching the altar boy, mm -hmm. but he's thinking about it. And not only that, but he's probably thinking about the boy and then thinking guilty thoughts about thinking about the altar boy. And he's yes. all just all in a mess and he's repressing his behavior. But in that case, that's a good thing. I am all in for suppression. I am all in for uh, squashing those bad actions, but I'm also in favor of 
not even having those feelings that have to be suppressed. And the way that we're going to not have those feelings that need to be suppressed is by not talking ourselves into those feelings, thinking of something happy instead of something unhappy. So I know that that's kind of a strange way of looking at it because uh, in Western psychology has really gotten suppression and repression is a really, really big deal. And yet I'm 100% in for it. I would much, much rather you suppress your murderous feelings than to stab your uncle in the back. Mm -hmm. Please repress. Don't hurt him. Oh, here's a thought. So so the difference between (laughs) repression and thinking wholesomely is when you're repressing, you're just thinking, oh, I better not think that way. You know, whereas if you're turning it to the wholesome, you're changing the mind moment entirely. You're going onto a new track, you know, as opposed to just trying to obstruct the other track, which is doesn't work. But you have to go mm-hmm. on the new track. Right. So normally what we do with recalling suppression is by having these the violent thoughts and having the emotions that are associated with those violent thoughts, but we dare not act upon it. Okay, because it's wrong and we know it's wrong. But what we don't understand is, is that we not only have control over our behavior, Mm -hmm. but we have our control over our feelings also. That's the remarkable part is, is that we do have control over our feelings. Right. Thinking about things that we want to think about that are wholesome. And we will have wholesome feelings. If we continue to think unwholesome thoughts, then we will have unwholesome feelings. Simple as that. But it happens quick in the mind. It happens really fast. That just one mind moment is enough to freak some by people out over certain issues. Mm-hmm. Like uh, if you were a gunslinger in the Old West and you walk by the sheriff's office and you see a wanted poster with your photo on it or your picture on it, just one instant, you see that photo, how are you going to feel immediately? <laughs> right then and there. It doesn't take a second. It doesn't take five minutes for you to wallow in your, you know, you get right into that misery immediately. Okay, so this is how things happen. There's many, many examples like on the way to an interview and you remember that you've forgotten your cell phone or that you didn't bring your resume with you or something like that. And we freak out just instantly. Or if somebody calls you a dirty language or a dirty word or a bully and you get called a bully, and immediately you feel bad. <laughs> right? Just one word, and then we're off into feelings. So this is why we're talking about that if something can happen as real gross input that comes in, and we have an immediate feeling about it, that's also that we can have a thought. And that thought will bring on a feeling immediately. So that every time that we remember he called you a bully, you feel bad again. Yes. And then you, then you remember, oh, he called me a bully, and then I feel bad again. Instead of, oh, I can embrace that. Oh, yes, he called me a bully. So what? It's not me. And so exactly. we, we nurture that. We, 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 we bring it in rather than try to push it away. The wincing, the not liking is actually 
that would be the what we're suppressing, Parker, is the winch or the the reaction, uh, the, yes. the, the 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 feeling. But then we have the thought again, and then it comes again, and then we have the thought again, and then the feeling comes again, and then we have the thought again, and then the feeling comes again. But we're not acting yet. There's um, too much fear to address the thought because they think that's them, and I, I'm guilty of this if I even give that any um, power that it is real. Exactly so. And there's the personality view. That was yes. me. <clears throat> yes. Rather than all, that's not who I am. I don't know well, who I am, but that's good because anything that I am is to own some bad behavior or to feel bad. That in fact, the self is the source of the dukkha. Always yes. we have to be selfish in some way for there's to be some dissatisfaction. So in fact, in uh, in some respect, when Titnahan is mentioning to uh, to nurture the dukkha, that means to nurture that self that was suffering to help the baby to stop crying, or to uh, to, to embrace the dukkha, which means to pick up the infant that's crying, to really nurture yourself, really nurture, and and the nurturing is is that. You're okay. That's not me. You can get along without that. Rather than the kind of suppressing thoughts of you better not think about that stuff because you're going to feel really bad. Right. So, yeah. So the problem with the repression then isn't simply the um, the not thinking it or not changing the wholesome, but it's also thinking another unwholesome thought about how much you don't like yourself. For the fact that you're sitting <laughs> Precisely, exactly. Just one unwholesome thought after another, wholesome thought after another, wholesome thought. Like, oh, that was a bad issue. Oh, you're not supposed to think about that. Oh, this is all terrible. Oh, what's this dukkha all about? I mean, what's this meditation stuff all about? This is ridiculous, you know? And off into the dukkha land, we can go with those kind of thoughts. But if we can come back and say, oh, no, it's okay. Yeah, I had a memory, but that's not who I am. So one is actually chasing it down to kill it. You're, then that's the suppression way, is to try to destroy it. But what Tidnahan is talking about, no, we're going to embrace it. We're going to yes. nurture it. We're going to um, uh, get all warm and gushy about how nice we can feel about whatever happened in the past, because that's not me. That's done with. It's over with. Wow, am I so glad that I don't have to be that 10-year-old anymore. What a relief it is. <laughs> Chris, what do you think? Excellent. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you made, everything's clear. I'm glad. I don't, I don't, oh, oh, I moved my little camera there. I've got that so that we got, you know, very heavy light source coming in from this side over here. So I put a little box up there. Okay. But it was covering up the, uh, uh, the ticker showing how long we had been sitting. <laughs> <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
Well, I think that we can draw this one to a close. Parker, I think that this has been uh, useful for you about understanding suppression. I'm in suppression. I really like suppression. Yes. <laughs> suppression is going to keep you out of prison. Don't kill that uncle just because you hate him. <laughs> 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 but also I'm in for let's not hate our uncle. Let's change our attitude. Let's change the way that we're thinking rather than repressing bad feelings and anguish. So, Christopher, did you get embracing? Did you get that? I got it. Yeah. I like that. I like his terms. I'm I'm really actually a secret. I'm a fan of Titnahan. He's using my language, embrace and nurturing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I even think he brought up an infant. I, I mean, I got to listen to it again, but I'm pretty sure he brought up an infant in there too. I'll have to, I'll find the passage for you. And unfortunately, it was on an audio. So I, I mean, sometimes if I see something good, I'll highlight it, but I couldn't do that with the audio, but I'll try to go back and listen to it again and maybe send you the passage that I listened to. Okay, all right. Okay. I, well, I do appreciate guys, all your comments, so thank you. All right. Well, let's finish off now, and we'll see you guys later. Thank you oh, so much. I mean, you, you guys have made my day. I'm going to just go into the other room and just suppress for a while. <laughs> <laughs> bye, Don Rana. Bye, Rana. Okay, bye, bye, guys. Great to see you. It was great seeing you guys. Okay, bye-bye, guys. Thank you so much. Yeah.